Good morning, and uh, as I said, it's a, it's a privilege and honor to be here to share the Word with you. I, 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 um, I take the study of God's Word very seriously. We do that at Calvary Chapel. We teach through the Word, and, and um, um, so we're going to go through a few scriptures this morning. The text for this morning's message is Luke chapter 4, but we'll also be in James and Genesis 3, and we'll go there first. Um, so um, Luke chapter 4, James 1, and Genesis 3, but... Before we start, I have a question for all of you. Um, have any of you ever struggled with temptation? Okay, so about a dozen honest people. The rest of you failed the temptation to lie in church. A famous writer once said that I can resist anything but temptation. That is me. Um, and for this morning's message, we're going, to, we're going to be examining the temptations of Jesus by Satan. That's uh, recorded in three, the three synoptic gospels. And we're going to see what we can learn from those in our fight against succumbing to temptation. Now, our text this morning is the Gospel of Luke, but I'm going to be laying some groundwork for the text. So we won't be starting in Luke. We'll be starting in James. But in Luke chapter 4, Jesus at this point in the narrative has been introduced. He's been baptized. Uh, he's been filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, and we see the first thing that happens to him is he has this encounter with Satan. Now, let me say at the outset, we know Jesus lived a sinless life. And we know from this encounter that he is being tempted, and that is not the same as sinning. To be tempted is not to sin. Something happens when we are tempted that is further or past the temptation. Something happens in the mind, something further than just the thought of the idea. It gets entertained, it gets fertilized, it develops. And then, um, and James explains this in, in James chapter 1. So we'll turn there first. Um, but I want to set the stage for the temptation of Jesus so we have an understanding of what's going on there. In fact, a significant amount of my notes are in preface to this study. So it's, in a sense, front-loaded. Um, we're going to get to Luke, and so I don't want you to think that when we get to Luke, my, my goodness, we've got another hour to go. No. It'll only be two hours, I promise. <laughs> but in James, we read, James chapter 1, verse 12, blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which is, the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot tempt, be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. L let's pause there for a moment. Um, this tells us that Jesus, as God, cannot be tempted by evil. So why did Jesus go through this? This is not to prove his character to the Father. He hasn't been in perfect communion with the Father for eternity past. So they already know each other, and they know that he is, um, his, his character is not in question. Um, it could have been uh, to being tempted by Satan, for Satan to have his best shot. I think certainly that does occur. And we can assume that Satan certainly thought that he could tempt Christ. He certainly thought that he could be successful. And we will see that there are lessons that we can extract from this encounter. So certainly there is a teaching moment for us as well. Now, there is an open question 
as to what Jesus laid aside, what he gave up to be found in the likeness of a man. And and as we explore this thought and these temptations, I I want to preface this with this warning. The discussion of the nature of Jesus' humanity and his divinity, this is holy ground. Um, And I do not take it lightly, nor should any of us. Jesus was and is fully God and fully man. In John chapter 8, verse 40, well, verse 39, this is Jesus is being um, uh, uh, tested uh, by the Jews. And they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. So clearly, he tells him he is a man. Sixteen verses later, same chapter, same encounter, John chapter 8, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to stone him. So they figured that out pretty quickly. He was claiming to be God. Fully God, fully man. It's a mystery. We don't understand it. I'm not going to try to explain it. I do know that the Bible describes that. And as a kind of a quick refresher, the idea of the Trinity, if anybody asks you, um, you know, we are Trinitarian. We, yes, you know, uh, what that means, uh, good luck. Um, (laughs) The answer is yes. And, and it, is, it is described in Scripture, but not explained to us. At the most revealing place in Scripture uh, that I think of is the baptism of Jesus, which happens just before this, because in that moment, and this is in Luke chapter 3, John chapter 1, Matthew 3, and Mark 1, so it's in all four Gospels, and we see the Trinity. We see Jesus being baptized, the, the Father speaks from heaven, and the, and the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus um, uh, in, in like a dove. So we have the Trinity there in that, uh, in that scene. So James tells us that God cannot be tempted by evil. Jesus is God and human. But as a human, how far can that temptation be taken? Now, one of the thoughts here, um, this is you know, kind of popular in the theologian uh, circles that, you know, Jesus only did this sort of as play acting, that he went through the motions. He's never really tempted. Um, it's just illustrative for us. Uh, I, but I read in James chapter 1, each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So there's a question here, what's going on? Was Jesus drawn away by his own desires? And what does that mean? We don't know. But I think more than anything in this, what we see is Jesus experiencing temptation as a human being to be tested and tempted in all ways that he might have empathy with mankind in our temptations. And then he might succeed where the first Adam failed. The second Adam, Jesus, is successful. We read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. He went through this, and he can aid us. He can sympathize with us, empathize with us. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, it says, seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace and help in time of need. Um, Therefore, we can do this because Jesus went through this like us. Now back to James, verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. The goal of the temptation is to draw us away from God's will, draw us away from what God's best is for us, and focus on self, our own desires, our own wants. The temptations will be for us to bypass God's will and submit to our own will, our own selfishness. Then in James 15, then when the desire is conceived, he gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So when this temptation is obeyed, fulfilled, it leads to self-will, selfishness, and acting on this, we are now completely out of God's will, and we bear the fruit of that, which is death. So when we look at these temptations, we can see a few things. First, Jesus went through this. And we can know that he was tested and therefore understands our human frailties, our, our, our own human experience. He can sympathize with us. Second, we're given a picture of how a holy man of God answers temptation, um, being filled with the Holy Spirit, walking in the will of the Father without succumbing to temptation, without sinning. And thirdly, it gives us a picture of how the enemy attacks. Now, another thought, the three synoptic gospels all record this. Mark chapter 1, Mark gives the shortest account. It says he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he's tempted by Satan, and then he is ministered uh, by angels. So, kind of the Reader's Digest version. Matthew 4, verse 1 through 11, gives pretty much the same account as what we get in Luke. Luke's gospel has the last two temptations reversed. Now, Luke tends to group things by theme, so that doesn't surprise me. And there's no, Luke doesn't say that he's trying to record chronologically things that are happening. He's recording things as he's interviewed and grouping them so we might know who Jesus was. So, um, uh, but, but the fact that it's recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels does lead me to a question. Luke is interviewing, he's collecting information, he's speaking to the disciples, the parties involved. Which disciple was present when Jesus was tempted? Whose testimony is Luke getting? And for that matter, Matthew or Mark. How did they pass on this account since none of them are there? There are only Jesus, Satan, uh, recorded here. Of course, we know the Holy Spirit is present, and we can assume God is there because he's omnipresent. And then we know that angels minister to him right after this, so the angels uh, are probably there but there are no disciples. That means that Jesus thought this was so important that he taught it to his disciples. 
Now, we're not told this. This is just something that we surmise because it appears in the three synoptic gospels. That means that one night they're sitting around the campfire, and Jesus said, you know, I have this teaching moment. I need to teach you this, and he explains the temptations. And, and I have this thought. This is my own conjecture. Um, uh, but there is a similar encounter. There is another place in Scripture where we have, you know, when Jesus has this second in, in, in temptation where he says, you know, he is tempted to take a shortcut, and he says, get thee behind me, Satan. It's in Matthew 16. Peter, who has just made this famous confession, you are the Christ, the Son of God, and, and you, know, you know, kudos to Matthew, or Peter. Um, and then he says hey, Jesus, you know, you've told us you need to go down and be crucified. You don't need to do that. And Jesus answers that. Matthew 16, verse 23. And he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now, this is conjecture, and this is just my thought, but I'm thinking that that night they're sitting around the campfire, and Peter is dejected. He's, you know, he had this wonderful moment, and then he stuck both feet in his mouth. And Jesus is saying, listen, guys, this is how the enemy works. Let me teach you how the enemy tempts us. Again, just conjecture. But at some point, he felt it necessary for them to, to know this. And, and eventually, that all of us would be armed with this truth. So, turn uh, me now to Genesis chapter 3. I want to make another point here, and, and that is that Satan has used this attack on mankind for all eternity. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, you may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you shall surely not die, for God knows that in that day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now pay attention here. The, so the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that the, it was pleasant to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and also gave to her husband to eat, and he ate. It's the ultimate fall of mankind, the great fall that affects all of us, resulting from this, this temptation to sin that is encouraged by Satan in the Garden of Eden. Satan was ultimately successful. He got the first Adam to fail. And he's going to attempt to get the second Adam, Jesus Christ, to fail as well. But Jesus is not going to fail. And the point I want to make from this is that these three temptations are the same temptations that Satan uses on everyone. They're universal. They're so universal that in John writing his letter, the the, the first John that we read earlier in our Scripture reading, um, he warns us in those Scriptures do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of, the, of God abides forever. These three things we're going to see are common tools, common 
uh, enticements, common temptations that we as humans are susceptible to. Lust of the flesh, bodily desires, feelings, lust of the eyes, coveting, desiring things that aren't ours, pride of life, self-determination, self-will, with all deference to Frank Sinatra, doing things my way. In the temptation of Eve, we see the lust of the flesh. The fruit looked good for food. Lust of the eyes, it looks pretty. It's appealing to look at. The pride of life, it'll make you like God. I'll be wise and I'll be able to determine good and evil. I will be able to be my own judge. And all those things are at least partially true. Except you'll be subject to your bodily desires. You will be able to understand or to, to, to set your own standards of right and wrong, to self-govern, but you will govern unjustly. You will fail to govern because you don't really know what's right and wrong. And you're helpless to follow this own self-guided, self-willed, selfish system. And you will exist in this horrible state, unable to save yourself, unable to avoid the consequences of your decisions. That is the state of Adam and Eve. That is the state of mankind. The struggle of mankind today is that we want to have the freedom to choose. We think we have the the right to choose. And we want to determine for ourselves what is right and wrong. But we cannot control the consequences for those choices. The outcomes. We, we want to have free sex, but we don't want to have responsibility of the product of that, whether it's a child, a disease, or a broken person. We want to drink and use drugs for pleasure, but we don't want the responsibility of the broken lives and the damaged brains and the bodies that result. We can't change those. And these three things really challenge us in ways that we probably don't want to admit. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. The temptation, in essence, is God is holding something back. There's something out there that I don't get, that I don't have, or that I want, that God is keeping from me. I I want to be the judge of what is right and wrong, but I have limited knowledge and power and control. In, In Deuteronomy 17, God warns the kings of Israel, same things. Don't multiply wives, lust of the flesh. Don't seek after money, covetous. Lust of the eyes. Or chariots, power, pride, um, pride of life. It's the universal struggle uh, of mankind. So God, having mercy on us, sent His Son to succeed where Adam failed. So, with all that as, uh, as groundwork, um, let's uh, get into the text in, in Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Some of the most difficult words for me to read here are filled with the Holy Spirit and then led by the Spirit into the wilderness to face Satan. I think we have this thought that we get saved 
and it's all unicorns and rainbows, you know. Um, but we have this sort of dilemma. We, I do believe God has a perfect plan for our life, and I believe God's plan is perfect and best for me and for you. God loves me, and His thoughts towards me are perfect, are good, but it may not be what you or I think is perfect or good. And I think we need to be careful when we present the gospel that we don't mislead. If you live in an oppressive area, becoming a Christian may be your death sentence. That's why we should count the cost. But the truth is, you exchange this earthly struggle, this fallen life, this sin, um, uh, sin-corrupted world, and you exchange it for an eternity in heaven, the new creation, immortality, and blessings, and clouds and rainbows and unicorns. Um, but we're not guaranteed that here. That's all in the future. We read here that Jesus, after being baptized, was filled with the Holy Spirit and is led. Mark's gospel said he's impelled or driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to face Satan. And in obedience to the Lord, you may be led directly into full assault against the enemy. But it is never for you to fail. It is for the Lord to show himself strong It is for you to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, not in the footsteps of Adam. So in those days, he ate nothing, and afterwards, uh, when he had ended, uh, he was hungry. Now, when you fast, there was a period uh, where you're hungry, and then followed by a time where everything feels good, you feel okay. That may last 20 or 30 days, but you get to a place where you begin to hunger again, And that is your body saying, okay, you're dying. You're beginning to self-destruct. Your body is eating protein now and not fat, and and it's time to eat or die. And one quick comment here on the devil, Satan or Lucifer. Um, He goes by many names. He is not polite. He's not going to look at you with pity and say, oh, my goodness, he's not at full strength here. Let's wait until he recovers, and we'll attack him and have a fair fight. Um, That is not how Satan works. He piles on. The name Satan means adversary. He is not your friend. He is your adversary. And the enemy is happy when you are defeated. He takes you out of ministry. You become a casualty. You're no longer useful. And he's one. Jesus told us the enemy comes only to Steal, kill, and destroy. That's the enemy. So Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, tempted for 40 days by the devil, and in those days he ate nothing. And afterwards, when he had ended, he was hungry. Then the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Now, in the Greek, there is what's called a class condition. You know, we use if, and and we use it in lots of different ways, and, and it's much more precise in the Greek. Uh, we, in if, we might have if as in maybe, like if it rains today. There is if as in meaning, uh, meaning never, which is if pigs could fly. Um, there is if as in meaning, you know, if, you know, certainly, and like if the Pope is Catholic. So, you know, we, we have these expressions in if, but in Greek they're much more precise. The class condition here is since. 
So it would be we clear to read this, since you are the Son of God, that is not the question here. He knows he's the Son of God. Um, Satan is going to tempt Jesus, and in doing so, he's going to reveal his hand to us, how he's going to, to deal with these temptations. And, um, and, as, and as we've already laid out his strategy, Jesus is hungry, his body appetites are screaming at him. He is hungry. Satan tempts him to feed himself. Loss of the flesh. Now, is it a sin to eat? I hope not. I like to eat. Um, What Satan is doing is trying to get Jesus, just like Eve, to distrust the Father's love for him and to take it into his own hands, feed himself. God is leaving something out on you, holding out, and you can take care of this. To question or doubt God's love for the Son. To get the Son to work a miracle to provide for himself. A little shortcut. Take matters into his own hands. Operate out of the will of the Father. We see Jesus submitted completely to the will of the Father. Would Jesus choose to not trust his Father or, and to submit to Satan? In Romans 6, Paul describes how this works, the end game here, and that is Romans 6, verse 16, do you not know that whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey? The question is, who do you trust? Who do you obey? Do you think God is really going to take care of you, and do you trust that? Now, something I find interesting here is that Jesus could have made all the stones into bread, could have done this. In fact, in chapter 9 in Luke, we read that Jesus feeds 5,000 people with just a few loaves and a couple of fish. But in that case, it will be in obedience to the Holy Spirit and to God the Father, it be in the Father's will. That tells us that we can do the right thing, or what seems like the right thing, but be completely out of God's will. So we must be careful to seek the Lord in all of our decisions, big and small. Verse 4, but Jesus answered him saying, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Deuteronomy seems to be Jesus' favorite book. He quotes it a lot. I think he quotes Deuteronomy the most. But I think this verse contains clues for us that go far beyond the usual, or maybe the casual reading that we may look at this and think, oh, yeah, he's quoting Scripture. Yeah, great. Um, But I think what he is saying is, I can beat you as God, but I'm going to beat you as a man. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word of God. He did not say, God shall live by bread alone. He's stating how he's going to conquer this temptation. Thus, by not using this divine power that he has access to, but he has set aside, he overcomes this temptation and shows us how we too can overcome temptations. By being filled with the Holy Spirit and using God's Word, we, can too, we too can overcome the temptation of the enemy. This is the part I was alluding to earlier where I talked about the humanity of Jesus. We, we, we don't know all that he set aside. But I believe he lived a life as much as humanly possible to be that example to us. Still fully God, 
fully man. He gives us this example that as a man of God, filled with the Spirit, completely in the Father's will, that's how we should live. Temptation two. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give to you and their glory. For this has been delivered to me, and, and I, will, I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, I, if you will worship me, all will be yours. Now, Jesus does not say, hey, I own the world already. I mean, if this was not a real temptation, this would be kind of foolish on Satan's part to say, oh, I'm going to tempt you with this thing that you already have. Jesus doesn't say that. In John chapter 12, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. You see, when God made Adam and Eve stewards of the earth, he entrusted it to them. They submitted to Satan. They passed on the title deed to the earth to Satan, and he was now ruler of the earth. I believe that is what is happening in Revelation 5. I believe that is, you know, they're crying because there's no one there to open the title deed to the earth, and Jesus is found worthy, and he receives, uh, he, he's able to open that. He has won back the title deed to the earth. So Satan is offering Jesus a shortcut. He can get it all back. He doesn't have to go to the cross, just bow down, worship uh, you know, the, the Satan. Something that Jesus really wants, just like the food, he's being tempted by something um, that he, he desires. And the kingdoms of the world are rightfully his. In Psalm 2, it says, the Father will give the Son the nations of the earth. It's something he desired, something that would be eventually his. Looked appealing, thus the eyes. And Satan will come at us with stuff that some of it may be even good, but it's not in God's timing, not in God's will for us. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only will you serve. Deuteronomy six thirteen. To get this, Jesus would have had to worship a false god not the true God. I think one of the things that trips mankind up today is we worship false gods. We're a little more sophisticated now. We don't want to call them false gods, um, but we worship them nonetheless. The Canaanite gods were worshiped by sacrificing their babies for a successful crop or a successful business deal. What's the number one reason women give for getting abortions? It's financial sacrifice. How did many of the pagan, pagans pay tribute to their gods? They used temple prostitutes. Men and women don't do that today, do they? We have something called the porn industry. Um, I, there, I couldn't find any recent information, but this is a couple years old, but it says that the porn industry brings in between 6 and $14 billion a year. To give you an idea of the scope, that's the range that the NBA or the NFL bring in in total revenue. Six and 14 billion a year. We are created to worship. 
And if we don't worship the Lord, we will worship something. Temptation number three. Then he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hand they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Satan quotes scripture. Can't beat him, join him. So he follows this pattern, pride of life. Show off your power, your destiny. This little display of the divine. When Satan begins to quote scripture at you, look it up. Confirm what it says and that it's interpreted correctly. Turn with me real quick to Psalm 91. Psalm 91, that's what he's quoting. Verse 11, for he shall give his angels charge over you, sounds familiar, to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. He just left out a few words. The purpose of the angels to have charge was to keep Jesus in the will of the Father. Minor detail. To keep Jesus in God's, the Father's will. By misquoting the Scripture, he was hoping to convince Jesus that it was okay to test the Lord frivolously. Hey, this is no big deal. This little display, and, and, and everybody will know that you're, you're God, and we'll move on. And there's a tendency in the church today to misquote or um, to misapply uh, scriptures to fit our needs. You know, we read something that sounds good to us and we apply it to where it may not fit. And some people like to command God in the same way. And quoting a scripture out of context, um, a gentleman wore a shirt to our men's conference this, uh, uh, this year, earlier this year, and um, he's, he's here in the front row. I should have called him and asked him to wear it because he could stand up and demonstrate it for me. But it said, I am able to do all things through a verse taken out of context. <laughs> I, I love that shirt. Not for what we should do, uh, but what we should not do, obviously. Um, our job, what we're supposed to be doing is being diligent to present ourselves uh, approved of God, workers who rightly not be ashamed, but rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly dividing there means to cut to the truth, to cut right to the central meaning, right, to what it's intended. Jesus understands the Scripture clearly. He wrote them, so he's not going to fall prey to this. Jesus answered and said to him, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Jesus answered again using Scripture, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, in the proper context, the proper meaning. I, I, I think, you know, there's, there's a sort of a movement today uh, in the church to not teach, you know, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus are kind of old and boring and hard to teach. And I, I think, frankly, if Jesus quotes Deuteronomy, it's good enough for me. So we will study Deuteronomy. We have studied Deuteronomy. Verse 13, now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him for an opportune, until an opportune time. Until an opportune time. Satan doesn't quit he just waits. He cannot last us. He, he, he can, he's been here 10,000 years plus. <laughs> he cannot last us. So, some thoughts as I wrap up my thoughts here. Um, 
What can we take away from this? Well, Satan's tactics don't change. They don't have to. They work. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, pride of life. Control of our body appetites, control of our thought life, humility. These are all helpful against these tactics. And, and, and these are contrary to the Christian lifestyle. So if you have friends that are in your life and they see you kind of walking in these areas, maybe getting astray, you need to give them permission to speak in your life and say, hey, I see this is kind of out of order in your life. And that's important. It'll become obvious to you and to your friends if you're paying attention. And the same attacks will be the same. He will appeal to the same three areas. Body appetites, covetousness, greed, pride, selfishness. God is holding out on me, something holding something back, something I deserve. Um, he will take advantage of circumstances to advance his attack, good or bad. Jesus had just been baptized, spiritual high moment, and then we have Jesus is fasting and weak, spiritual, maybe a physical low moment. He will appeal to doing the right thing in the wrong way or the wrong time. But the important thing to me in all of this is what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? He did not shout at Satan. He did not speak in tongues. He used Scripture. And I think we can take strength against the attacks of the enemy by doing the same thing. Psalm 119, verse 11 says, Your word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Your word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. We hide God's word in our heart. And those moments of weakness, God brings those to our remembrance. And I, and I notice here, too, it's not, you know, Jesus doesn't pray. And now, it, Jesus prayed all the time. So it's not that prayer is a bad thing. But in these moments of attack, he quotes Scripture. And so I wouldn't say, don't pray. That would be stupid or foolish. But I would say, you need to hide God's Word in your heart to fight off temptation. If you have a problem with lust of the eye, Psalm 101, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. I made a covenant. I'm not going to look on, on something that's evil. Anger, self-control. Psalm 37, cease from anger, forsake wrath, do not fret. It only causes harm. So then, my brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Find scriptures where you struggle that speak to that issue in your life, memorize them, and repeat them. God will use them in your life when those temptations come to set you straight. Control your body appetites, your thought life, your humility, but especially um, hide God's word in your heart. That's how we fight temptation successfully, just as Jesus did. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you. I thank you for the life you lived on earth as not just a demonstration, but certainly was at least that, a demonstration of how we should live, how the first Adam should have lived, and how everyone who names your name can follow as an example. Thank you, Lord, that you've sent us your Holy Spirit 
that he might live with us and be in us and be our tutor, be the truth detector, be our comforter to help us. Well, we, we pray, we thank you that, that, that when we do fall, we have a high priest that sympathizes with us, that we can approach you boldly, come to the throne of grace to receive help in time of need because you love and care for each one of us. And, and Lord, I pray as we face struggles, Lord, help us to have victory through your word. Guide us to scriptures that help us. Guide us to, to help memorize. I know it's a real struggle for a lot of us to memorize scripture. I pray you would help us there, that we might memorize scriptures that would be tools in our, in our tool chest um, that would help us and guide us to a, a holy and, and, and complete and fulfilled life. And we pray, Lord, that you would stand on our behalf against the enemy who desire us to do nothing but steal, kill, and destroy. So we pray for your blessings on each and every one of us this morning, and we ask this in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.